Hello and welcome back to the Business of Film, episode number 84. Super excited to uh, welcome you to the end of 2018. It's been a pretty historic year. Uh, we have to celebrate the historicness of this year and what could be for the first time ever a $12 billion box office. We're not there yet. By the time this, this podcast comes out, we will be a few days away from, uh, from the end of the year. So it's still undecided whether or not we're going to hit that mark, but it's pretty remarkable that we're almost there. So, so we have with us today uh, Patrick Corcoran, who represents the National Association of Theater Owners, uh, and he's here to talk to us about uh, theatrical releases, about what the association does, uh, how they represent filmmakers in the industry. Uh, we talk about a very wide range of subjects here on today's podcast. So I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Certainly really interesting to hear about uh, about this year's past and what we can look forward to in future years, uh, how the association is helping independent filmmakers. Just we cover all types of really cool topics in this interview. So I'm really happy to have them with us on the show today. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we move on to the conversation. I want to wish everybody a very happy uh, New Year, happy holidays. By the time this podcast comes out, which will be a few days before Christmas, just uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, uh, whatever you're celebrating. Uh, just all the best to all of our listeners. Thank you so, so much for contributing to giving us your, uh, your attention and your time. There is now, this is episode 84, so there's so much really cool information. If you're just looking for some stuff to do while you're out there, uh, you know, uh, enjoying the time off that you have. If you want to deep dive into any of our past episodes, you know, there's a treasure trove of really awesome information that I hope will help you in your endeavors. And we've got some exciting news coming up for 2019, which we hope to share with you uh, at the top of the year. So stick around if you want to find us. Uh, best place to do that is uh, you can find me on Instagram at Jesse Eichmann, uh, or you can follow Craft Truck at Craft Truck. Uh, so without further ado, uh, I welcome to you Patrick Corcoran from the National Association of Theater Owners. Happy New Year, everybody. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate uh, NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners, reaching out uh, to be part of this podcast today. So, Patrick, just just so that I can get a frame of reference and so that our listeners can get a reference frame of reference, can you just tell me a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do at uh, the National Association of Theater Owners, otherwise known as NATO? Yes, uh, we're the uh, largest uh, movie theater exhibition trade association in the world. We have uh, about 650 members, uh, the majority of them in the United States, but we also have members in 95 countries worldwide. And we lobby and advocate for the interests of movie theater owners, You know, whether it's in front of Congress or state legislatures and uh, regulatory bodies. And we also sort of are the, the public face of the industry. Now, when you say the public face of the industry, you're talking about which aspects specifically in the industry, just the theatrical side of it or representing just the theater chains? The, the, well, we, we represent uh, theaters of all sizes. It's from the largest in the world down to, you know, a mom and pop in, in Des Moines. So it's, it's, you know, one screen. Uh, it's the whole range. Uh, we, we speak for, for theater owners' general, you know, uh, uh, interests. Fair enough. And yourself, how did you get started in this? How did you, uh, and when did you join uh, uh, NATO? By the way, I love saying NATO. It's always so much fun uh, just to say NATO. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I it's love great. It. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's the only trade association with an Air Force, so we have a little extra power. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I'm sorry, sure I'm you, you've, heard, NATO, uh, <laughs> you've heard that, that one before. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, it, I started with NATO 20 years ago. I came on as a, a writer and editor for our in-house publications, and just over time have, you know, it's like, would you like to pick a website? Yeah, sure, I'll do that. And we just gradually grew into a lot of different things, doing data and research, and, and then eventually uh, representing uh, NATO to the press. It's my primary job at this point. What is the big messaging that you want to get out there? Like, what is the, what is the big ticket message that you are putting out to the trades, to, I guess, websites, to... Uh, you know, shows like this, end of 2018, going into 2019. Right. It's basically that, that movie theaters remain incredibly popular, both in the U.S. and, and worldwide. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, and it's, a lot of it was stimulated last year when we had like a really weak third quarter in summer. 
and that was sort of coinciding with some bad stock market news about the industry. And at the same time, you had people talking about, oh, well, streaming and premium video on demand, all these things, the movie theaters are going to die. And we sort of realized that, you know, we've got a good story here that we, we want to tell, that it's consistently strong, that, you know, when the movies are there, so are the audiences, and the theater owners have been upgrading their theaters over the last decade and a half, you know, first with uh, stadium seating and then the entire transition to digital projection so that it's pristine and the same every time. You don't have the wear and tear on film and and with the mechanical uh, imperfections of, of uh, film projectors and that people are still very, very interested. And when they come out to see a movie, they have a good time and they want to see more movies. And that's part of what's been going on this year is there have been so many big, well-performing movies that were broadly accepted that it's trickled down into the rest of the film slate. And people are seeing a lot more movies this year than they were the year before. And it's going to be even more next year. Am I correct in saying that this has actually been the best like box office year on record, or are we are we at that level right now? Is that about where where we're at? End of the we, year? we will be next weekend. Next. Uh, for the, this past weekend, we passed. Yes. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, we passed last year. Please, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we we passed last year. This, this that's all right. We passed last year. This this weekend passed. Uh, we had eleven point zero nine billion in revenue last year, and we're past that through this weekend. Next weekend will push us over the all time record, which is eleven point three seven five billion, and then we still have you know almost two weeks left of prime movie going, and there's a, there's a real possibility you know that every day will be a record from that point on. But there's a real possibility, depending on how the movies play, that we'll hit uh, 12 billion for the first time. First time ever, 12 billion dollars. Okay, so uh, can we just get right into the meat of this conversation, which is, uh, and sure. uh, I mean, uh, we have to go here first, just because it's 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 not even the elephant in the room. It it it, it is the room, but it's the ongoing debate between obviously those people who are saying we want theaters to have windows. Uh, versus those people saying out in the world, no, we want to go day and day. We want to either just move uh, the experience of watching movies to how and when users want to watch movies. Uh, the the basic idea is that the window is there to protect individual movies. Uh, you know, people like choice, but there is a business model that a movie can grow to its full potential theatrically if it's exclusively in theaters. And if you put an artificial limit on that, you put an artificial limit on the number of people who will show up to see that movie. I, I think we're having a, you know, sort of an illustration of that right now with with Roma, where um, you know Netflix for the first time decided to give an exclusive theatrical release to a movie before it went onto Netflix. They only gave it three weeks, which from the interest in this movie theatrically and and the power of it theatrically, as as, as the director himself points out it's the best way to see the movie and he shot it with that intention is that after three weeks it's now on Netflix at the same time and and a different calculation enters into people's minds right it's like well I've already paid for it it's here on my TV and when it's not so much that they don't care to go to the movie theater but when they go to the movie theater they're thinking about what's there exclusively in the movie theater it's like so they're deciding between movies not necessarily between theaters and the home and the same thing is happening for um, theater owners. When they're thinking about what they can put on their screens, they're thinking what has the potential for the most revenue, for the most audience, and what helps give it that potential. So if they're choosing between a couple of different movies, they're going to go for the one that's going to be more successful for them. And the window helps make it more successful. And, and, and you know, to, to emphasize this, exclusivity is important and it matters. Netflix does not put its movies out on DVD or on other platforms at the same time it's on Netflix. They want you to come to Netflix. And we want the same thing in movie theaters. And it's, it's, a, it's an important choice people make. It's important what they're doing with their money. And part of that calculation is the knowledge that it's only in theaters. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's certainly like, I mean, there's a lot of ways to slice this, this conversation. Um, one of which is certainly the kinds of movies that are driving you know 12 billion in box office so studio versus independence versus uh you know i guess the i mean we'll just use those two boxes for now cuz it's easy um or is it 
you know, the, those that are going directly to like an asphalt platform versus those that don't get the opportunity to, to go into theaters. And Rome is actually a really interesting example. So I'm happy that you, that you brought that up, but at the heart of this, I really wonder, like, I, I genuinely am asking that I'm asking you that this question is like a genuine consumer. Uh, uh, you know, all my friends are telling me to go see Roma in theaters, um, you know, as, as, as an, as an avid movie lover, I wonder is, is services like Netflix or and others out there right now that are that are, that are advocating against uh, windowing? Is it really? Is it? Is it? I mean, it's hard to say. It's hurting the business right now because there's so much box office. Although, the th- but again, this is where the, the 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 other side of the coin hits. It's like, okay, well, what kind of movies are actually driving the twelve billion dollars of the box office? So, I mean, I'm wondering if if, if you can comment on, on both of those the, those two sides. One is. Is it, can can you have the discussion about there being, you know, the requirement to have windowing and the requirement to have, you know, uh, the exclusivity in theaters at the same time that you're having the best year you've ever had, uh, and not you, I mean theaters in general, uh, and then and then and then the other side of that, well, does it impact you know indies, studios versus independents? So it's both, it's it's all of that. Yeah, it's a mixture. And one of the things that I will say is that, you know, all of those movies having a really big year have windows uh, of exclusivity in the, in the theater. And there's no contradiction between streaming services and the theatrical release with a strong window. Amazon does it all the time and are, they're having success with it. Not every movie should go to the movie theater. You know, not all of them have the potential to do really well. What we're suggesting is that when they do, you do it properly so that it has the best possible chance in the movie theater. Uh, I think, you know, Netflix is shortchanging their filmmakers and the potential theatrical audience. You're, you're seeing how well it could be doing. And, you know, there's, um, and, and we're not just doing uh, blockbusters alone in, in, in the, the movie theater. It's, it's the majority of our business. You know, the major studios account for over 90% of our box office, but, that 10%, you know, 10% of $12 billion is a lot of money and a lot of movie going. And there's a movie out right now, The Favorite, which is sort of following a traditional release. It started out in four theaters, and it's now up to about 450. And it's been expanding, and it's going into larger theaters and more theaters, and it's grossed around $7 million so far in about three weeks. And it's going to continue to do that, and it's going to get... And it's not an easy movie necessarily. It's a comedy, and people are really loving it. But it's it's from a famously quirky director, and it's not necessarily it's a period piece. It's not necessarily something you would see doing really good box office, but it is, and it's going to continue to, and it will probably get a, a an Academy Award nomination, and it's going to play and make more money. And the exclusivity allows it that room to grow and find its audience over time. If it were going and and independents have done this experiment with a short release window or simultaneous release. And what it does is eliminate your upside. It, it cuts away some of the risk and it also allows them to, on your, you know, your pay-per-view on, on cable, you know, rather than being stuck in an alphabetical listing, they can say in theaters now. So it may boost their, their home revenue over what it might have been, but it cuts down on the potential home revenue, uh, rather potential theatrical revenue. And we've seen this with, you know, a couple of movies where they talked about uh, how successful they were, like Arbitrage and Margin Call. And movies like that, when you compare them to a market where it had a proper theatrical release with a window to the U.S. release, it's overall money, not just theatrical, but theatrical and the home revenue, ended up being less overall than it would have been if they had had a traditional theatrical release as they did in other markets. And we saw that time and again. And the distributor that put out those movies, um, Roadside Attractions, got out of the simultaneous release business because it didn't work for them. And there's sort of a, a stigma that it's, well, it's really straight to video. It's just in theater for a token release, you know, whether it's awards consideration or just so you can say you had a theatrical release. What we're suggesting is if you have a movie with theatrical potential, make it a real theatrical release and theater owners and audiences will embrace it. And, and let's actually talk about that because that's that's sort of an interesting. I mean, f- first of all, I should say this. Uh, I you know obviously I went into this conversation very quickly and heavily, but I, I but I'm genuinely also curious about this point. Is this the defining conversation right now for 
where we are, end of 2018? Or is there some other conversation that you think we should be having that's the conversation that is the most important conversation going into 2019? So what I'm wondering is, as the National you know, uh, Association for all these, the, these theaters, what is the most pressing concern for theaters going into 2019? Is this it, or is, or is there something else that, I, that, that we should be talking about? This is, this is not it. I mean, it's, it's interesting, and uh, you know, as I pointed out before, you know, maybe about 10% of box office or less is to sort of the independent releases, but it could be more. Uh, and you know, Netflix, you know, they may have <clears throat> three or four movies that have real theatrical potential, and it'd be great to have them. But the overall interest, I think, for theater owners is a steady flow of diverse movies in the marketplace, because the more movies you have with potential interest aimed at a bunch of different audiences, the bigger the collective audience will be. And and that's something that I, I think we've seen over the years as the studios sort of got out of that end of the business with the independence and sort of prestige products and were really, really kind of swinging for the fences with the blockbusters is we have higher attendance and more box office revenue in the $100 million grossing plus movies. That's just the case from 15 years ago. We have more of those movies. They make more money, more people see them. Where we're missing admissions and revenue that we used to get 15 years ago, it's in that sort of mid-range 50 to $100 million grossing movie that might be a romantic comedy or a drama that the studios kind of got out of that business. And the independent uh, distributors have not sort of stepped up enough with content. We need more of those movies. Uh, you know, we don't want to say to the audience at any time, we don't have something for you or we don't have the thing you're looking for. We want to have a range of product every week. You know, we, we've got blockbusters now in January and we've got documentaries that are grossing. You know, we had three or four of them that got over $10 million in, in revenue um, and they opened in May. You know, and so there's a range of product that can play all year long, and that's our consistent, our members' consistent concern is that we have enough movies and a wide enough range of movies. And so, what what is the association? Uh, what are your members trying to actually do about that? Like, what do you what what, I mean, what what can practically be done? Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to move a very very large needle in a direction that they may or may not want to go, that needle being the studios. And as you pointed out, they want to do the big, big budget movies that are driving massive box office. So how do you actually approach that, what seems to be a very challenging issue? We, we've been meeting a lot with filmmakers, with agencies, and with the studios and independent studios and really encouraging them and sort of making clear the case for theatrical release. And, and as the studios have gotten out of that space, there's a market opportunity for independent distributors. Uh, Amazon is actually into that space, and they plan to expand and broaden out with more commercially uh, viable titles than the, they've been kind of aiming mostly at prestige mid-range things, and they're going to expand that range with more commercial titles. And we talked to all of the the independents who have tried to get into that space and are expanding into it, like A24 and Annapurna. Um, Broad Green was doing it for a while. Uh, there, There's room for more movies and for more movie makers. And this is why, you know, partly we're encouraging Netflix. We could use three or four more commercially viable movies. It'd be great. Let's bring them in there and, and, and you know, and do it right. And, you know, the, that that door is open to any distributor who, who really wants to uh, sort of look into this space and, and sort of realize some of the opportunities that are there. What is that conversation actually like just on, on a very granular level? What does that conversation look like? Because this is, this is sort of where I'm coming from in terms of, you know, the basis for that question. A lot of people who listen to this this podcast are either avid movie lovers in the film business, producers, directors, independent filmmakers, or those probably, to be frank, not in the studio system, because most of our listeners are in the independent right. space. Uh, I mean, if, they're in the two, if, they're, if people are listening to this and they're in the studio system, that's great. But for the most part, people who are listening to this podcast are going to be the independent film system trying to knock on the doors of the independent film distributors. And they're listening to this and going, okay, this is all great, but what is this mean practically like how does the national how does how does the association have the conversation 
with the distributors in such a way that there would there will actively be some kind of change on the other end and the other end being what the distributor is looking for in terms of the product that it wants to pick up from the filmmakers so when you say that there are opportunities right. and that these things exist and that the filmmakers want to build uh, that the that you want to build out on behalf of the association more of this kind of product like at a very you know granular level it's like it's like what does that conversation look like how does the association help theater owners or like, you know, help the filmmakers to help the theater owners to help you. Like, it's all one big circle. But where does that conversation start? Right. What does it look like? Right. Uh, there are a lot of strains to the conversation. Uh, there, There's one, which is that the cost of making, producing, distributing a movie and marketing it especially is, is high. So there's... Uh, a couple of things. One is that the virtual print fee, uh, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of and others are going wet, uh, is uh, basically to help offset the cost of making the transition to digital cinema. And that gets paid by distributors for every movie that goes through a cinema. Those virtual print fees are about to go away, which is going to reduce you know, by about 800 to $1,000 the cost of going into any particular theater right off the top of the, you know, top of things. So, you know, $800 doesn't seem like a lot, but if you go to a, a thousand screens, that's $800,000 before you've made a dime from your, right? And that's going to go away, which is going to... Look- no, it's huge. Is that something that, that you lobbied for? I mean, it's like, when, how did that come in? I mean, that, that's really interesting because like we were, I was, I, by the way, like just... I was with this, this exact math was the problem I had. I had a film, me personally, had a film trying to get into 500 theaters. We did the math. It costs so much money to get an independent film at a specific demographic into the theaters. I mean, this is exactly the problem that we had. So, sorry. Uh, yeah, right. So, 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 and so that's, you know, and it's, it's, and it's right. And it's partly, this is the, the promise of digital cinema that basically, You've got networks, you've got cheaper distribution, but we had to get through it first. And actually getting almost every screen in the U.S. converted required this subsidy from the studios and from independents who wanted to go through theaters. And that, that brought the cost down from you know about $1,200 to $1,500 per uh, screen. You know, and then you could sort of reuse the print and it would be degraded, but it's still usable. But what would happen is that cost got lowered, and there was uh, basically a contract that said by either 10 years or when the equipment is paid off, whichever comes first, those VPFs go away. So it's built into the system, and just in the math of and the calendar of when these systems were put online, we're starting to see those fees go away. Uh, about 20% of screens right now no longer have VPFs. It's going to be double that in about a year, and then it just continues to, to do that. Uh, other ways um, that we've talked about are, are for uh, uh, small distributors to look beyond their traditional distribution uh, models and, and footprints. You know, it's not just New York, L.A., Austin, San Francisco, Chicago. It's there's a lot of other places that can play a lot of these films and not all of them are art house. Some of them are, you know, the, the faith-based titles and, and there's, you know, something beyond the distribution through mega churches. There's, you know, you can, the upper Midwest, you don't have so many mega churches. There's a different way to distribute them. But part of it is to make filmmakers and distributors aware of what distributing to that broader footprint is like and putting them in contact with theater owners there's the possibilities down the line as this networking gets easier for direct connection to theater owners and bypassing traditional distributors altogether. Uh, we've we've been investigating that to a degree, um, and that's it's complex, but it it, it can happen. Uh, there's also uh, leveraging uh, what the uh, movie theater owners have in terms of customer data for marketing to make your marketing more efficient and therefore less expensive. I mean, because that's still going to be the biggest hurdle of any kind is making people aware of this thing that is in a particular place at a particular time, and you might like it, right? That, that's really tough, and it costs a lot of money. So we're looking for ways to, to leverage loyalty programs and customer data and to get theater owners working directly with distributors and filmmakers on, on uh, issues like that. 
the first part where my kind of spidey senses go off is, okay, there are certain websites out there that allow you to tap into being able to get your film into theaters directly. But however you want to, whether it's through various websites that, you know, allow you to gain access to, to, to theaters or it's the independent filmmaker, as you're saying, you know, trying to reach out directly to theaters. Um, can you comment more about that or talk more about that? Like, because that does happen and happens a lot locally. I mean, I'm right. I'm, I'm, I'm based in, in Toronto and, you know, on a, on a local level, I can tell you a lot of the independent filmmakers will reach out to the independent cinemas of which there are, uh, again, right. please correct me what others, like 960 odd or 900 some odd Plus, yeah, there, there are a lot. Yeah. There's a lot, right? So the independent filmmaker has the yep. ability to reach out to these local theater chains or even some of the bigger ones directly. What does that conversation look like? How do filmmakers do that? What's the best approach for them? Yeah, currently it's 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 sort of a patchwork, and it's it's difficult. There's a lot of the sort of crowdsourcing things like Tug, where you set up a screening, and if you get enough people that are interested, it will be booked in the theater. Uh, there are other ways that. You know, essentially, digital networking make possible that aren't in place yet, um, but over time could be, uh, which you know would eliminate a lot of the cost. Because even right now, you know, if you have to go to a, a distributor, you know, they're essentially buying it off of you. You know, and and then, or if you're lucky and there's real potential, they're buying it off of you. Plus, you're going to get a percentage, uh, and you hope to sell it elsewhere. You know, foreign films and in the home market and everywhere else, and hope to make your money back. Uh, but that means that there's a certain for them to buy it, they have to justify what they've spent to buy it from you. Then they have to start thinking about the marketing costs and distribution costs and everything else, which makes it tougher, you know, for any small film that might have an audience to make its money back because all these costs get added in. And then the key to sort of direct distribution is to wash those costs out of the system, to take some of the middlemen out of it, and connect not just one or two theaters, but every theater with potential filmmakers. Um, still not available yet, but it's, it has the potential to be there. Do, do you find that when you're talking directly to the theater owners that, I mean, it's one thing for a filmmaker to say, yeah, I, I, I want to reach out to the cinemas, but from your side and your perspective, do you feel that theater owners want the filmmakers to be calling them directly? Is this something that they actually... Is this a conversation they actually want to have? Yeah, yeah. Some do, some don't. Uh, some, you know, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, a, a lot of the larger circuits in particular actually have this because people know them and come to them. But you have filmmakers who arrive and don't actually know what a DCP is. And so it's it's a basic education in a lot of ways. You know, people know how to make films. They don't necessarily know anything about the distribution. So it's a long, again, long process of of teaching filmmakers what's required for a theatrical release and making those those theaters available to them. Uh, just in terms of the system as it exists now, the complaint I hear from smaller theater companies is that they are not part of sort of the distribution universe or or way of thinking for the the, even the smaller uh, distributors right now. And they're like, I could do well with this movie, but I never get a chance at it. And that's another element that needs to get m- more efficient and, and made to work better. So when, when you, just to clarify, when you, when you say that, you're referring to the smaller theater chains not getting a chance at the, f- like the, the independent filmmaker's documentary or the independent filmmaker that has a specific demographic just because that film will never find its way to that local cinema or are you talking about a larger film right than- because because distributors in particular it could, it could be a, a slightly larger film but it's it's even with the independent distributors uh, they have their habits they know what works for them and it's difficult this is a very tradition bound industry on all ends right so it's it's difficult for um, distributors to expand their idea of what's possible for a movie and it's also because of kind of silly metrics, which are like per screen averages. Um, you know, so you you limit your release, so you got four the four screens, so it can look like a really hard, you know, high number of people went to see it because of your big screen average, because you've limited the availability. Uh, that's not always the right metric, 
uh, you you can still add dollars to your gross by going to smaller theaters that you know are not going to have a huge gross, or that won't be part of that you know those urban demographics that that so much that drive so much of the the art house uh, market. There are a lot of art houses all around the country that aren't in in big cities. So are you suggesting that the per screen average is a silly metric and that there's a better metric or that just it's just a just a straight up let's just drive the gross or is it some other metric that one would yeah, want to think about? Yeah, I think the gross is the gross is the key. The gross is the key and and uh, you know the uh the, the difficulty with with the per screen average is there is no average screen, you know, just like there's no average American. Uh if if, if you're in a 75 seat theater, well you're going to have a lower Per screen average than if you're in you know a two hundred and fifty or three hundred seat theater right and right. there are small theaters around the country that are just right for that you know that size for their market that could do really well, and you'll get that out in front of people that wouldn't otherwise see it in a in a movie theater so all all of those there there's a lot of rethinking of the possibilities that digital makes possible uh for theater owners and for Filmmakers and distributors. Out of curiosity, if I just want to shift gears here for for just a second and talk about the, uh, I guess the the films that aren't reaching cinemas that could be reaching cinemas. Um, it, it, I, it's it's weird to talk about because you don't know how well a film could do unless you've got the ability to put it out there and market it. But at the same time, there are. I mean, you were saying this just before, right? There are some films that they're just not designed to be a theatrical experience. I mean, some films, they 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 by necessity want to be a theatrical experience. But there's some films that are like, I can watch it at home, take it or leave it. I just, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be, doesn't, I mean, whatever, for, for what it's worth. And in quotations, it doesn't have to be seen in theaters. So... My 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 question is this: When we're thinking about these films that are kind of you know they could go left, they could go right, you're trying to advocate on behalf of these theater uh, on behalf of these the, you know uh, theaters that you want to pull these films into the theatrical experience. If it could go left, it could go right. Well, most filmmakers that I know want to have their films, all else being equal, not only in theaters, but also available to the widest possible audience. I see these two things. Right. Well, again, a theatrical release, they're not in conflict at all. I mean, look at the, the what Windowing does. Is it doesn't say you can't go to the home. It just says go to the home in the proper sequence. And it doesn't affect how many people will see it in the home market once it gets there. It's just putting it off for a few months to give it room to grow and breathe in the theatrical space. There's, I mean, the, it's a false argument that, oh, if you go theatrical, then not as many people will see it. It's not true. Theatrical actually is more likely to buy you a space in the home market than not. And that's why you see this simultaneous release, uh, you know, and these hybrid re- releases, is to bring more attention to it because it's in the movie theater. So it will do better in the home. Yeah, I I I agree with that fundamentally. I I agree. I mean, I mean, but a lot of it, and it comes down to, as you were saying before, a lot of it comes down to just being able to market the film. I mean, these are you know marketing almost. Right. It's almost like the 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 challenge isn't so much getting it into the theater because it sounds like theater owners want to have these conversations. It sounds like filmmakers, if they wanted to find a way to get them into theaters, they can. It's this arbitrage of of money. And how much money is it going to take you to make it worthwhile to right. get your film into the theater? And I guess that comes down to the, what the theater owner wants to know as well. I mean, I'm assuming that at the at the at a very base level, the the first thing a theater owner is going to ask you is, "Well, how are you going to market your film?" Sure. Yeah, that that's an enormous consideration, and 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 it and it because you know that people are going to be aware of it. Um, it's a big lift, you know. We're in a big country with a lot of different outlets, and people are split up in a lot of different ways. So, you know, it's difficult to reach people in a broad way, uh, but it takes more thought and it takes rethinking the way you market. But you can reach them in a lot of small ways, and you can aggregate an audience 
in a lot of small places uh, that in, adds up to being a, a bigger audience. Uh, but the other point is, again, it, it's about the reason why people might want that simultaneous release. And it is a very small number of movies and a very insignificant fraction of the box office is that it uh, minimizes their risks financially, but it also lowers their upside. You're basically putting a ceiling on how much money you're going to make. And, you know, filmmakers are paid in a lot of different ways. It's both by, you know, if they own the rights to it, then it's, you know, theatrical and the various windows in the home, which are also kind of shrinking into basically one. You know, there used to be three or four home windows. Now there's basically one or two. You know, we're just going to be your hard goods, you know, DVD release uh, around also the electronic sell-through and then streaming, whereas you used to have, you know, premium cable and free cable and then streaming. And, you know, there was a whole and then free TV and a lot of different permutations. Well, that's contracted to fewer opportunities for filmmakers. So, you know, and, and then also adding in uh, residuals and all those other rights for, for the creative elements of your filmmaking team. Uh, a lot of that is based on how it does theatrically, and then you've got more when you get into the home windows. But this all sort of going to streaming right away compresses it to one payday, and it's not necessarily as large as what you could get if you had multiple. Right, which is, of course, going back to the argument of try and keep the film for as long as possible in as many windows as possible to maximize revenue. If I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, right, right. Now, yes, it uh, maximizes revenue. It maximizes the attention. I mean, that's one of the biggest issues for for streaming, is there's so much of it, and the you know from the filmmakers we've spoken to, and the agencies, you know, everybody loves the money. It's sort of you know your budget plus ten percent, and it's done, and they don't you know hassle you on how you're making your your movie, but once it's released, there is the same kind of impact. Right, there isn't the same kind of attention in in the in the zeitgeist and on social media and everything else. It's you're just it's almost as if they didn't exist, and that's very frustrating for filmmakers. Uh, you know, for uh, just to give you an example, uh, with with Itania, um, you know, t- um, Margot Robbie, who was also an executive producer on that, had basically in her contract that if the offer was for streaming only, even if it was the highest offer, she could reject it if it didn't have a theatrical component, and which is exactly what she did. Netflix was the highest bidder on that movie, and they turned it down for a theatrical release. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's really, really cool. Good for her. On the, um, on the studio side, out of curiosity, when, when, you're, when you're advocating or when you're representing the association, because we've been talking a lot about independent filmmakers, I do want to get from you know the time that we have to get your your gauge on the conversation that's happening inside the studio system. What is that conversation looking like? I'm really really curious. What do the theaters want? What are they lobbying for? To, for, for lack of a better word, yeah, what are they, they're, what they're, are they lobbying for with well, the studios? There there are some some similar things. There's a, there's overlap. One is they want access to more titles, and again the the studios have their their distribution plans in place and they're used to them and they know how to execute them. And we have, again, theater owners who are saying, I could do well with this movie, but I can't get it. You know, it never makes it to them. And the VPF is part of that calculation. The studios make that same calculation as to whether they want to go to that expense on titles. As those go away, we're we're suggesting to the studios that they broaden their thinking in terms of the, the release patterns on a lot of their movies. You know, our, our members are obviously concerned about various things that we can't advocate for, which is, you know, film terms, you know, and what the splits are. That's something we stay out of completely because it's it's illegal for us. Uh, and that's something that the, the theaters and the studios negotiate together. But access to, to films and broadening the... Uh, the uh, the footprint of, of distribution and also the the range of movies and and the times of year when they're available uh, you know that 52 week a year calendar is something we've been advocating for for well over a decade and we're and we're seeing that really start to change and you're seeing you know big movies all year round and that actually is good for smaller movies as well 
uh, you know, if, if you go back to last year when we had all the focus on the third quarter being so weak, and it was primarily because there weren't really broad appeal movies being released, and that trickled down to what might be people's second or third choice or movies they wouldn't hear about unless they were already in the theater for that bigger movie and they see the trailer or they see the posters or the standee in the in the theater. And that had a real effect in the third quarter of this year. We were up, you know, about 12% over what we were the year before. And we had some big movies out there. But the movies below the top 20 box office in the third quarter were up 30%. And that's because people were more aware of them because they were in the theaters. The people were in the theaters being made aware of those movies and enjoying the experience and wanting to go again. And here are these movies that they heard about in the theater. So it all sort of feeds together. And that's something that we think is really important, is that telling the audience that there's something there for them every week. My dog is howling in the background. Did you hear my dog howl in the background? He wants to go to a movie. <laughs> my, dog, my dog wants to go to a movie. He's in the, he's in the back <laughs> howling. The sirens are going. It's, 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 a bad, it's the office dog. He howls. But I heard all of that. Uh, and the dog heard and, it too. And, uh, and again, the... And again, the dog howling and the sirens going off, you won't hear in the theater. You only get that in the home. There no. you go. Bingo. <laughs> um, so <laughs> uh, so two, two things there. First is when you say the 52-week uh, calendar that you're advocating for, is that because the studios are only bringing up the big movies in the summertime, you know, May through wherever, um, it, 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 and they're not bringing out the movies that people want to go see or the bigger movies um, outside of you know the you know Christmas or summertime or those kinds of big holiday weekends is is that what, what you're referring to specifically or did I completely miss yeah, that? Yeah, and and that, yeah, that that that's that's right on target, and it's it's uh, something that's been improving, and it it weirdly enough I think improved if you back up to remember when uh, uh, Disney released sort of their Marvel Phase Two and. They laid out that timeline of all these movies going out to about 2020. And what happened from that was everybody looked at that and said, yikes, where do we put our movie? And they started expanding the calendar. Even Disney had to look at their own Marvel releases and go, okay, where do we put Pixar? Where do we put Lucasfilm? So they, they all started looking at different places in the calendar. So we got things like Black Panther in February, you know, and, and uh, you know, Avengers moved into April and broadening that out. And we're getting big movies all throughout the year, you know, things like It in October. And, uh, you know, the Get Out was in January and just exploded and did great and played for weeks on end. So having that opportunity, you know, showing that it's like, no, it's not that people don't go to the movies, it's that we weren't offering them the movies to go to. And once you start seeing that possibility that you can take your blockbuster and do blockbuster business in January or February or March, or in November or October, there's there's a lot of possibilities that that opens up. And again, having those movies there gets people aware of the other movies that are in the theater and getting them to come back. And the big part of that is all of the just enormous capital expense that theaters have put into remaking the movie theater, you know, starting with stadium seating 20 years ago into the digital transition, which completely remade the basic technology of, of the industry across 40,000 screens. And now you're also seeing, you know, the immersive sound and different uh, visual formats with high dynamic range coming in and laser projection and adding in now, which is just crazy, the, the uh, recliner seats, you know, the large recliners. And that's having a big effect on, on movie going. You know, it's, it's one of the things we look at where you know, when uh, the Star Wars was coming back for the first time. And we knew that there were a lot of these new amenities in theaters. And I was curious about the reaction because we were going to be getting people who hadn't been to the theater in a while. And it was just what we expected. You you know, having people tweeting, my God, this is the theater now. <laughs> you know, it's a, and they were just really surprised with it. And the, and the food and beverage choices, you know, whether it's just you can have a cocktail or you can have a full meal. There's a whole range of things for a range of price points and for a range of consumers in different markets. And so, you know, that that's the biggest job of the movie theaters to present the film really well and to give them a, a great experience with comfort and, and, and good service. And those two things working together are, I think, really revitalizing the industry. And are you feeling that, like, the studios in particular are 
engaging well with uh, with NATO in terms of like getting the theaters to be quote unquote better versions of what they ultimately could be. Uh, are they actually moving on this fifty two calendar year idea? Are, are these yeah, things they, like they, are, they, or, or they are they? Are yeah. yeah. And, and and so when think, you, yeah, they definitely are on the on the fifty two week calendar because that's something we've seen just pick up pace and get better and better. Um, you know, in two thousand sixteen, I think we we hit almost an ideal year in terms of balance. Uh, we had four quarters that were all each individually within about one hundred to two hundred million dollars of each other and what they grossed, and we had a record year. Uh, this year has been overstuffed. It's it's been overperformance and just overstuffed with with big movies. Um, you know, the, a lot of people, you know, Wall Street analysts and people in the industry were saying, well, this year, you know, it'll be maybe even with the year before, maybe even down a little bit. But, you know, the year after that, 2019 is going to be huge. Just look at the calendar. And this year is just performed like gangbusters, you know, month in and month out. And we're, you know, we're up just uh, about uh, 8% year over year. But we've had just, you know, crazy big quarters, second quarter's up 22%, the third quarter's up 12%. It's just, you, you put all these things together and you end up with a really great year. And part of that is that there's movies available all year long for, for that people are interested in seeing. And, and when you say the projection for 2019, that presumes that there are people sitting behind desks, a lot of, day, a lot of databases being made, about how much money 2019 is going to project. Yep. Are you involved in those conversations right now? Yeah. And what is 2019 so looking people like? People ask me a lot, and we, and we look at it. Well, this is people were suggesting that, that they were saying that 2019 could be the first $12 billion year. This year seems to be overperforming, so we're going to get close to it, if not hit it, by the end of the year. Uh, and next year is just kind of packed. I mean, if you look at the, the, the sample of it, you know, you've got the Lego Movies 2, How to Train Your Dragon sequel, Captain Marvel, Avengers, Aladdin, Godzilla, Spider-Man, Lion King, It 2, Toy Story, Jumanji, and, you know, the, the final entry in the Star Wars mainline uh, trilogy. And that's just a lot of movies. And that doesn't even get into, you know, a bunch of other titles that... <clears throat> Who knows how they're going to do? But these are the ones that people look at and go, oh, yeah, they're going to do great. Um, so projections we take with a grain of salt um, because you kind of model them over what movies like them have done before. But that doesn't account for when something catches fire. You know, people looked at uh, uh, Black Panther and the projections for that, you know, six, eight weeks out were it was going to do like any time you introduce a new character to their own title in a Marvel movie, about 250 to $275 million dollars. And as it got closer, people started to pick up on the buzz and the interest, and they're like, "Okay, so maybe 400 million." And you know, of course, it did 700 million. So you, you can't actually predict when something's going to really catch fire with the audience. And just movie after movie has done that this year. It says people have been underprojecting on on most titles. So uh, just from the theater owner's perspective, they must be really, really happy with this year. I mean, like, what is the what is the pulse inside of most of the big chains right now in terms of this particular year? People are, are really, really pleased. And like I said, some of these, the big chains where the people telling us really emphasize 2019 <laughs> because we're not so, you know, 2018 will be okay. And it's just uh, been breathtaking. I mean, I think the second quarter with that 22% jump year over year was just unheard of and, and we're fairly amazed. And, and you know, and, and at the same time, the average ticket price has remained, you know, reasonable and lower than what it would be adjusted for inflation from what it was 40 years ago, and we're offering a much better uh, product to our to and experience to our customers. The range of choices, the better seating, the better sight lines, and it's it's all very healthy. So on that pricing uh, topic, um, I, I I'm curious to get your opinion about the. The movie passes of this world, uh, and or other types of loyalty programs that theaters might be coming up with. I'm assuming that movie pass is the first of what will become different iterations of that type of thing. Uh, it's probably not the first we've seen of that kind of thing. But you know what? What has been the reaction of the, a the movie pass, b theaters uh, coming up with their own loyalty programs, and what are you guys doing as sort of that interface? But, 
between theater owners and the rest of the world to talk about those kind right. of products in the marketplace. Yeah, and pricing, again, is, is something that as a trade association we can't really be perspective about, but we can talk about what's been happening. Uh, there have been uh, programs like, well, there have been subscription programs in Europe for a long time, and they're, they're well-established and successful. Uh, the key for us and for our members is that the business model for it be sustainable, that the data that they're taking from customers is protected, and third, that the data that they're providing to the industry about what they're seeing from their customers is credible. And, you know, you can judge on all three of those counts how MoviePass was doing. But as a, a broader thing, uh, MoviePass accounted for, at its peak, for no more than 5% of ticket sales uh, industry-wide, some higher in different markets. But if you look at, you know, you, you can't be sure right now uh, how much of that was accretive, in other words, added movie going by MoviePass customers, or whether they just shifted their spending, or what percentage that broke down at. You know, it's probably a mixture, but we don't really know. Is uh, that a good thing, in terms though? of impact on movie going? Well, it's, it's, we'll see. You know, in terms of impact on movie going, I think what we have on our screens and, and what our theaters are like is a bigger uh, element of, of increasing admissions. You know, if you look at that second quarter with 22% in revenue and about 17% in actual ticket sales increase, that's a bigger impact than what MoviePass had. Uh, and that's going to be the case. However, what it does show us, and I think we knew already to a degree, is that there is a, a price-conscious customer out there that we could appeal to in, in certain ways. And whether that's through loyalty programs, I mean, either you're seeing Regals, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Regals, AMCs and Cinemarks, you know, very different plans, and they're both, you know, gaining members quite rapidly, and uh, you know, and we'll see how those go. Um, but the the question is always going to be, you know. Uh, where do you attract those customers? Do you cannibalize business? Uh, there's been in the, in the industry for several years uh, discount programs on Tuesdays, and it's attracting a different uh, type of consumer. It's, uh, they're, they're not cannibalizing the weekend. It's bringing in new film goers who might not otherwise be able to afford it, and that's a good thing. You know, Tuesdays has now become the most attended weekday outside the weekends since those prog programs have been in place. So there's obviously potential there. There's also important data you'll get from the loyalty programs about your consumer and your customer's habits. Uh, that's all to the good and valuable for, for theater owners and for studios to, to be able to, to leverage that. So we'll see how broad it gets. Um, Okay, so so net net. There, there's a consumer out there. We don't know how big it is. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So so net net. It's not like the theater owners were railing against this idea of there being a movie pass out there. If it's all the same to oh. them, and or it could be beneficial to them if the right program is implemented in the right way, whether it's a third party right. that's funding it, right. as in the case of movie pass, which arguably that might have been a broken model from the beginning, but who knows what you know, that the model looks like in the future. Yeah, right? I mean, that was the biggest concern, that it was sustainable, you know, both at the price point and whether they had the funding to keep it going. And and I think that was a, a major concern right from the beginning. Right, but so what I'm trying to, I guess, ascertain was it's not like the theater owners was like, this is a horrible idea, don't do it. They were, they, they were for all intents and purposes, if it can bring more people to the theaters, that's a good thing. If, if it's sustainable and if it's not cannibalistic, there's a certain price point that will work and that theaters in in their own programs or if they come with a third party need to work out because you don't want to cheapen the experience overall. You right. know what I mean? You right, don't right. want to tell people that it's only worth X number of dollars. And and that was the worry with, with MoviePass because it was it was at a price point that seemed unsustainable. And, uh, you know, the worry was if MoviePass fails, then you have a lot of angry consumers who can't get what they thought they deserved, right? So you want to be careful about setting that price level, which, again, every, every company is going to do on its own, so that they 
bring in more moviegoers. Uh, don't cannibalize people who are already going. And, you know, you'll also get the extra bump from concessions and, and, and you know, food and drinks. Right. That makes sense. I bet you could take something away from somebody who already thinks they're getting something at a, at a price point that they're right. that they think is the right price point, and you take it away, all you know, all hell is going to break loose. Um, so right, and you yeah. know, and, and what I think we saw was you know when when uh, MoviePass was having its real difficulties at the end of July and sort of hobbling their service, we didn't see any impact on movie going. We had you know enormous weeks, you know, five weeks after that into into August where there was really sustained and increased movie going from the year before. So uh, we don't think that, you know, it's, it's movie pass difficulties that have really impacted the industry at all. Got it. So I guess just because we're kind of, we only have a few minutes left here today, and I, I just want to get you just some, so some big picture takeaways, just some last thoughts. First of all, to the independent filmmaker, uh, what is the biggest thing that you like? I don't know whether it's a piece of advice or the thing that you could like. How does what can an independent filmmaker take away from maybe this conversation or something that you want to impart on them uh, on the relationship that they can have with the theaters that will best impact their ability to get their films seen? Is there anything, any resources they should go to, um, uh, things they should be doing? Anything along those lines that you might be able to share? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, there there are a few things. Uh, and the, the biggest takeaway is that theater owners want their movies if they think they can play. Um, that the infrastructure of the business and the cost structure of the business is changing. It may not be where it needs to be yet, but it's getting there. And that theater owners are willing to work. I, I couldn't name a particular resource right now to make that happen for filmmakers, but that those conversations are happening and that restructuring of the industry in certain ways, both economically and, and in terms of technology for, for getting uh, movies into theaters directly is on the way. It's just not there yet, but to don't don't give up on the idea of being in a theater if, if that's right. what you want from your movie. Right. And and is there a sort of a central database where filmmakers can go to uh, do their own research about theaters in their area uh, or in you know whether it be the state level or however big their circumference is that they want to target? Uh, where yeah. There 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 isn't at the moment. I mean, you can sort of leverage. Um, sort of the, some of the ticket services to get an idea of where the theaters are. Um, but there, there isn't right now something that, and, and actually Google maps is pretty good for, <laughs> if you, if you want to target and you know, having all the movie theaters show up in a, in a particular area. Well, um, you know what? It's funny. Moment, I guess this is something that. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Google maps. The, no, the, the, I, answer, I to, say, the yeah. answer to filmmakers woes. You, you, yeah. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, we we do have a lot of things actually in our own hands um, in terms of technology and and accessibility to information that's out there. It's not aggregated yet. Uh, Again, that's part of the process of this, uh, of what's being made possible by digitization. Um, But already there are, you know, filmmakers, I I think this is the one thing I I would say, that they have to be entrepreneurial, that being really good at shooting a movie, casting a movie, all the basic filmmaker tools, they also have to be entrepreneurs uh, unless they're backed by a studio or, or something else, right? Or they need partnerships with people who are to to really sort of drive that business, make the business their own. Because, you know, it's a big business, both in the theatrical end and also in the home end. And it's getting yourself seen is the hardest part. So you need to, I think, be as savvy a business person as you are a filmmaker. Well, that's going to be a whole other episode then for us. Um, <laughs> yeah, you already gave me an idea for the the next episode. Um, so, Patrick, just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to you know to talk to us here on 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 our on our podcast. And uh, you know, uh, I I know you're representing a trade organization, so it's not like people are necessarily going to be reaching out to you specifically, you know, as a result of, you know, this conversation. I know that's not even what you guys are about, but just sharing 
some of that information, just where we are again, 2018, just this banner year. Uh, anyways, I thank you for your time. I mean, truly this is, uh, I, I always love having the, these conversations. So I just want to say thank you and we'll have to do it again. Maybe, maybe we should make this an annual thing. We'll do a recap once every year. Well, see how the year was. Um, uh, yeah, yeah and, I enjoyed it as well. And thank you for, for doing this. And hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, thank you for all the information that you shared with us. Once again, uh, if you want to uh, send me a note, the best place to do that is just DM me on Instagram at Jesse Eichmann. Uh, I will hit you back. If you have any questions, topics, things you want to talk about uh, in 2019, please do hit me up on Instagram and I will get back to you. Uh, and we will hopefully carry on this conversation with some more really cool stuff in the new year. So happy new year, everybody. Enjoy.